0: Wow. Tough crowd tonight. I mean, I'm not sure, uh, you know, this doesn't go well. I can see tomatoes coming out for this one. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges, so if you want to head over there. And there's a small boy who was sent to bed by his dad. About five minutes later, there's this voice that coming to, echoes down the hallway. Dad, what? I'm thirsty. Can you bring me a glass of water? No, you had your chance. Go to bed. Then there's silence for about another five or ten minutes. And pretty soon there's a, Dad, what? I'm thirsty. Can you get me a glass of water? I told you no. And if you ask again, you're going to get a spanking. About five to ten minutes later, that, Dad, what? And it's like, when you come up to spank me, can you bring me a glass of water? (laughs) I think that's what God feels like sometimes dealing with us. So we're in the book of Judges in Judges chapter two. We finally finished Judges chapter one last time that I was with you and Judges chapter two. It starts off and says right here, an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land, which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Uh, That's one of the things I appreciate about God is there's a lot of covenants. There's a lot of promises that he gives, that he's not going to break. Uh, you know, we as even as a parent, you do your best. and You try to always keep your word and you try to always do things right. But you always end up failing somewhere along the way. Thankfully, our heavenly father, we don't have to worry about that. His promises are perfect. His promises are true. And he promises it's going to come through. And when we read this, uh, the other part that I get out of this is how sad this has to be. Because what he says here in this last part is is that I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land, which I swear unto your fathers, and have said, I will never break my covenant with you. Can you imagine having to tell something like that to your own children? You know what? It's like somehow we survived your toddler years. Uh, we made it through that years when you were going to school and preschool and all those other things. And here you're talking to your child and they're in the 20-something like, do I have to rehearse to you all the times that I've showed that I loved you? all the times I was trying to look out for you, all the times I was trying to do what's best for you. I mean, that's ultimately in some way what God saying this: I have to remind you because you've forgotten all the stuff that I've done to you. And I think that's, um, uh, once again, as, as I talked about before, to me, this is a failure of the Levites. The Levites were the one that was supposed to rehearse to the people the great things that God had done. And I think, but more than that, we live in a culture today that let's just face it it's not being rehearsed. Now, you're all here in church on Sunday night. You are the cream of the crop. You are the best of the best. But how many people out there if we were to go out in Ridgefield and just start dock, knocking doors would even have an idea of what's in the book of judges? How many of them? How many of them grew up with godly parents that went to church Maybe not the same stripe, flavor, or whatever else, but went to church where the book of Judges was taught, but yet their kids don't know it. And how unfortunate that has to be this, for God to look down and, and see the people like the Levites fail in their job to teach the younger generation coming up the things about God. Because it's, I think there's a, a, there's a manifold problem. It's not just the fact that the Levites didn't teach it. That's a problem in of itself. But we see really in the Old Testament over and over again, it's when the people that saw all the great works of God died off, off they went into the world. It's because that growing up generation didn't see these mighty works. And I think, honestly, I think the works were still going on. It's just that people weren't bringing them to attention and reminding them of, hey, do you remember when God did this for you? Do you remember when God showed up and met you and you had this difficult spot? I think it's really important sometimes to have a prayer meeting where all you do is praise God. The only purpose in the entire service is just to lift up God and say, this is what God did for me in my life. And if I had any thought ahead of time, you know, I could have suggested that, but I didn't, you know, think that far ahead. Um, But I think it's an important thing for us to remember the great things that God does to proclaim it in front of everybody else. Why? Because you don't know where somebody else is at. You don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know when they need to hear. It is so good and refreshing sometimes to hear the good things that God's done. And it may have been something 40 years ago. It still is good to hear and refresh in our own minds what God's done for us. Uh, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all sorts of things. God didn't give me what I wanted a whole bunch of times. I mean, let's just face it, if I would have got everything that I wanted, I'd be in a world of hurt. I'd probably be dead. I'd probably be in jail. I'd probably, who knows where I'd be. I definitely wouldn't be here, uh, just to be honest. Um, I think that one of the other problems that we have today is the pulpits of America. I think one of the sad things it's got to in America where the pulpits are is you can go and show up in church and you can absolutely learn nothing about the Bible. Uh, I went to one of those churches for a while, you know, you get a good inspirational message for about 15 minutes as the guy's up there and he's got the glass podium and, you know, he's all in the cool ripped up jeans and looks like, you know, a teacher, I guess. I mean, I I don't know what else to call them, Uh, because teachers didn't look like that. When I went to school, they actually had to dress up and look presentable and, you know, be an example and all that other kind of things because I'm getting that old. Um, but just think about how much is not being taught today in the churches that are just out there in the community? Yeah. No wonder we're such a mess. Right. We, we've lost so much. Um, how many do not believe in the literal death, burial and resurrection Lord Jesus Christ that are just here in Richfield or in Vancouver or in Longview or up in Shalos, where I'm at? They do not believe that there's churches there. We have several women in, in my little town. Not only that, you think about how many people mishandle the word of God. Because there are people who mishandle it. Now, as far as I know, nobody ever that's preached from this pulpit has did it, at least not intentionally. If I ever do, it's because it's, well, it's just me. It's The book's right. Just remember it's right and I'm wrong. That's all you need to know. But on the other side of the coin is, how many people are always going around correcting what the Bible says? Like, well the first thing is I view that as an insult to my intelligence. Number 1, I can read. I know today people can't write. You know, we had to read there's three there's only three things I had to learn worry about. Reading, writing and arithmetic. And and you don't even have to spell right to do that. You can just use all the Rs. You know, as an example. But we had to learn to be able to read. And one of those things about reading is you should be able to read the King James Bible. It was written if, from a general perspective except for a few words at a sixth grade reading level. So if you have a problem reading it, the problem is your education, not the book. And we have these things like tablets that I have up here. I put my notes on. You can look up words like that. You don't know what a word means. Webster's 1828 dictionary, pop in the word, doing. You don't even have to buy the big, thick book. You can look up what these words are. And most of the time in Webster's, when you read down through that list, it'll show you verses to go to to show you how they got the definition for that word. Which shows us that sometimes we can just take the word we're not sure about it and do our Bible search program and just see what it tells us. And sometimes that's a great place to go. Turn over to Matthew chapter 21. (coughs) Sorry, Matthew 23. I want to show you where I think America is right now today. Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to look in verse 13. One, well, do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you compass, sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him two four more, the child of hell than yourselves. I also believe that's where we're at here in America with most of the people that are preaching from a pulpit. And I'm not saying I don't care whether what the, I don't care what the label is on the door. Because we've got people that are so far away from believing God and believing the book, they're just out there basically rehashing man's wisdom, trying to make people feel good about themselves so they'll put money in the offering plate because they take the uh, preaching and the pastor job as a just a regular job that anybody should have. And that's not the way it is. Uh, the person who's a pastor is somebody who's called by God and then enabled by God in order to do that job. It's not because they decided they wanted to do it. It's not because mom and dad decided they needed to do this. It's not because their parents were a pastor. None of that has any bearing in dealing with it. Some of the most talented, educated, knowledgeable people in the world, God says, you're not fit for this. I'm going to take this person out in the out the boonies who does not have a degree, did not graduate. That's the person I want to preach from the pulpit. That's how God does things. He wants to use the foolishness of a man. And we sometimes forget that when we look at things. Let's take a look back at history. Go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. And we're going to look in verse 16. And the people answered and said, and this is after, you know, choose you whom this day, you know, you will serve and all that wonderful speech. And everybody's like, yeah, rah, 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 you know, that's our banner. Let's put it up on the church and all that stuff right after that. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Sounds great, doesn't it? Then it says, for the Lord, our God, he is it that brought us up out and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage in which did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed and the Lord drove out from before us all the people even the Amorites which dwelt in the land therefore we will also serve the Lord for he is our God now i don't know about you but If I ever got the opportunity to preach and do something like Joshua did, and then pretty soon everybody just pops up and wants to praise the Lord and give glory to God everything else, I'd be like, amen. This is awesome. Thank you, Lord. Can I do this again somewhere? You know, kind of a thing. But look what comes after that. And Joshua said unto the people, ye cannot serve the Lord. Do you see what's going on? Everything that they're saying is positive. It's a completely positive thing that's going on, and here comes Joshua, the preacher, to rain on the parade. He says, Ye cannot serve the Lord, for He's a holy God, He's a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions, nor your sins. Now notice how the people respond to this. Or sorry, verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, and He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that He hath done unto you. Verse 21. Now it's what the people say. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. Do you see how their answer is? He says, do not do this, because if you go out and worship strange gods and all this other stuff, they don't say anything about that. They skip that and just go, oh, we'll serve God. That's not what Joshua was talking about. This is called deflection. This is what a child does when you're like trying to get after him or something. He's trying to like, yeah, but you know, my brother's doing this or my uh, my sister's doing this, right? It's avoiding what the real issue is. And that's what Josh is trying to do. He's trying to point that that huge uh, magnifying glass down on themselves so they'll see what God's trying to talk to them about. And they're just ducking and dodging and bobbing and weaving and all these other kinds of things. And the people said unto Joshua, Nay, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against who? Yourselves. That ye have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine being in that situation? God God calls you out. You gloss over it. And then he says, you're going to be witnesses to it. And then you have the destiny to say, yeah, Lord, we'll be witnesses to it. I mean, like you think God's surprised by any of this? That goes back to, therefore, we will also serve the Lord. No, you can't. I mean, can you imagine? This is the closest thing I can think of. Pastor Ken gets up here. He preaches a great message. I mean, it's just hellfire and damnation and how you need to get your life straight and knock off all the stuff you're doing. You can just fill in the blanks with all the illustrations and stuff like that. And he gets done. And then you all come up. Everybody just gets up out of their seat and comes up front. And you're like, tell the pastor, please, please help us. You know, you're right. We blah, 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 blah. And then Pastor Ken comes over here and turns like, no, you can't go back and sit down. I mean, that's essentially what Joshua was doing right here. Like, no, go back go back and sit down. No, you don't. You can't serve the Lord. Just go on. Knock it off. Don't kid me. I mean, that's essentially what Joshua was saying here in this whole thing is like, who are you fooling? Are you really fooling God? No, you're not. I mean, it's kind of a self-evident answer. And when you read all the way through this, it's sad. Because you look at this and you see this whole situation. And Joshua telling them, verse 23, here's the rest of the story. Now, therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods, which are among you. They're already there. That's why they had the whole little deflection thing earlier when he said, no, you don't. You're not fooling anybody here. And see, as Christians, that's what we do sometimes. We think, you know, we think, yeah, but... This is just a small sin. It's not a big deal. God says, yeah, it is. It's just a little leaven that leaveneth the whole bunch. Um, and basically let's just call it for what it is. This is nothing new. This cycle repeats over and over and over again. I mean, it, in the book of Judges, we'll see as we go on. It's not, it's not something new. Turn back over to Judges chapter two. Judges chapter 2 and verse 2. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? <sighs> Ever thought about what God thinks sometimes? Why did you do what you did? You know, there's a simple answer I give God because I'm an idiot. And, you know, what did you expect? You know, kind of a thing sometimes. But there's other times it's like, Lord, because I don't love you as much as I should sometimes. Sometimes I get distracted, my flesh, the devil, the world, whatever it is. And yes, I love you, Lord, and and, and I want I, I want to be the right person, but it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy for other things. And I'll give you an example. I, I had somebody say this to me a I don't even remember who it was. It might have been in Boise. One of the ways that you can know a thing is an idol is when you can't have church service without it. Do you have to have pastor so and so in order to have a church service? Mm. Then he's an idol. Right. Do you have to have decorations of certain kinds along the walls of little statues and other stuff? Then what you have is an idol. Yeah. If you need God plus anything to have a church service, you've got an idol. Right. That also means if there's anything that's between you and the Savior, guess what? It's an idol. And it's very easy for us to like, well, I don't serve strange gods. I'm not. Lord, I'm nothing like these people. He's like, okay, well, let's talk about your mobile device. Let's talk about your computer. Let's talk about your, you know, your gun safe. Uh Let's talk about your shoe closet. Let's talk about fill in the blank with whatever it is. You know, maybe it's candy. You know, I don't know. I mean, you can be all sorts of things. What is it? That's deflecting you from the Lord. That's an idol. And there are certain idols that are common that are normal to everybody. But then it goes so far as God says, there's strange idols. You're getting into some stuff that look, you're off the beaten path. You're off the reservation. You're getting in an area where you're going to get yourself in a world of trouble and a lot of pain and agony. And, and that's the hard part as a, as a pastor, You know, I've got to know several pastors over the years, and you talk to them, and you can see their heart for their people. But sometimes, you know what? A pastor's going to go, and he's going to bleed his heart out for these people because he cares for them. He wants to see them do right, and then they go off the reservation and make a shipwreck out of things. And look, he's not happy because he's right. It's anything but it's anything but, and then on top of that, when that young person usually comes to their mind, like, well, I can't go back to that church because I'd be embarrassed. And you're like, you mean to the people that have seen you grow up your entire life, the people that love you and try to want to see you succeed because they've been with you your whole life. They're praying for, you? they're probably still praying for you today. You see how our minds can get, and it doesn't, Hey, you can be in your eighties and do the same exact thing. It's not unique to just kids. Um, I mean, one way to look at it is how many of us haven't thrown down or haven't known worldly or sinful altars in our lives? Hey, it could be that boyfriend or that girlfriend that can become an altar for you. It's something that's separating you from the love of God. It could be the job. It could be the money. It could be that fancy, you know, uh, three-quarter or full-ton truck with a diesel engine that you can pull the biggest RV behind it known to mankind, you know, the kind that you could take up to sub-zero temperatures, and it's got all the fancy things in that You'll be nice and cozy, and everybody outside will be an ice cube. Whatever those things are, those are the things that are the altars that we deal with the modern day. We're not dealing with, let's just face it. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time any relative of mine went into a tent of somebody else, pulled out a small idol, and then hid it from everybody. It's like, ooh, this is my special little thing. I've been in a couple tents when Bergman camping. I haven't seen anybody with those. Now, maybe they're just hiding them really good, but I haven't seen any. Why? Because that's not what we're dealing with in today's day and age. We're dealing with things that are distracting at the time and all these other things. I'll give you another example of in your life. What can't you live without? What can't you live without? How about your husband or your wife? That can be an idol. It can be your family. It can be so many other things. What can you not live without in this life that has then become to you, if it's not God, an idol? No different than them back then. Uh, Bob Jones Sr. has a quote, don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Uh, There's an illustration uh, I'm going to give you, and this is one you all know, but I'm going to let you fill in the blanks. Several years ago, there was a late night automobile accident which blossomed into a full bone tragic soap opera. This particular sports person fell from grace and involved a golf club. Anybody have an idea who I'm talking about? Somebody who had everything. He was at the top of the of the golfing world where he showed up. People wanted to show up to see what he was going to do. He was at the top of his game. They were expecting him to surpass every other golfer that ever lived that they knew about in recorded history. But it wasn't enough. Here he is, he has money beyond the wildest thing that probably any of us will ever completely have a clue about. He has all the cars, he has all the TVs, the houses, he has a beautiful wife, he has kids. But it wasn't enough. Because see, that's the problem with the human heart. It's never enough. It doesn't matter how much money you get, it doesn't matter what you have, it's never enough. We know that. Just look at over the last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of people that are are big and famous in music, in movies, in anything that you can think of. And look how many of them have a tragic end. They have depression that takes over and they end up taking their life. And yet, from our perspective, we look at it from a worldly view and we go, they have everything. No, they don't. They don't have a savior. Or if they were saved. They left him a long time ago. That's the tragic part. Because it's so easy to look at him. It's like, how could they want? They have everything. They can buy their own airplane. I mean, imagine that. You want to travel somewhere and not have to go through TSA and everything else? You're like, oh, no, I buy That I just walk out there, get in the plane, and off we go. Yes. Maybe I had to go to my daughter's wedding uh, in uh, June, so this is a little bit more new to me. Um, I really don't appreciate, I, I appreciate they're trying to keep us safe. It's just very frustrating when you have to add in a whole nother hour to your trip just to make it through the line, to get into another line, to get onto the plane. You know, that's just me. Judges chapter 2, verse 3. <clears throat> Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be as a snare unto you sometimes the choices we make, God says, you know what? I'm leaving this one, you know, cause let's face it. We all have prevailing things that, that are difficult for us in our, in our Christian walk. There's just things in our, in our own walk that maybe it's just me. I have this thing for you. It's something else. You know, I don't know what that is. You know, um, I tease my wife all the time about all sorts of different things very carefully. You know, like, uh, there happens to be a certain shoe shop just north of here that she really likes. Or is it south? Yeah, sorry, south. I have to think about eh, There you go. Don't ask me for directions. Um, that she really likes. Well, but the thing is, how easy is it is to get off of, you know, what food and raiment there with be content? Do I, do I have shoes on my feet? Yes. Are they the perfect shoes? Probably not. But can I be f- thankful for what God's already given me? Can I be thankful for the things I already have? Why is it I can't be thankful? Because I've got idols in my life. I've got all these other things. I'm, I'm looking at all these other things and think, well, if I could only have this, then I'd be happy. Could you imagine how many people look? Oh, I look at this movie star, and it's this movie star married, this movie star, and they're, oh, they're such beautiful people, and they have all this money, all this stuff. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. <laughs> Everything. Because most of them don't last. And yet we look at them and we idolize them and we, and we, I want to be like that. Why? You know, I, I you know, people can view without, I, I'd much prefer to see the old couple in church that have been married for 50, 60 years ago. Now I want to be like them. Right. You know, stick through the thick and thin that are still together that still love each other that still want to hold hands together, still want to be in the same room. You know, praise God, there's several of you here, there are couples, you're in the same room together, and you want to be. Praise God for that. That's an amazing thing. Why? Because in this world, we've got so turned into selfish into me that we become our own idol. It's all about me. Uh, we continue on here in, uh, Ch- Judges chapter 2, uh, verse 3. That land was full of heathen gods and practices, and God said up front, Wipe them out. Destroy it all. By the way, some people think that, you know, well, they weren't that bad. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16, and we're going to look in verse 21. And it says, Thou shalt not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make, neither shalt thou set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. During this whole time, whenever they got messed up in the religions of that area, what ended up happening? They'd put groves into the holy places. They'd put these little altars. They'd put these statues. They'd do all this other stuff that God told them all the way back here, don't do it. No. It's kind of like one of those, you got a little kid and you're like smacking his hand. No, no, no. And, you know, God keeps telling him over and over and after a while. And after a while he goes, okay, you want it. You got it. It's yours. Own it. Take responsibility for it. Now deal with the repercussions. And then what do they do? Oh, Lord, please help us. Look at all the bad stuff happening to us. Please take it away from us. And really, what's the difference for us today in dealing with our own particular fights? Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 22. Deuteronomy 16, 22 says, Neither shalt thou set uh, thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. Look at the word God's using, hateth. God's using the word. This isn't me inserting anything. This is not me interpreting. God says he hates this. So if you're going to go to people and you say, I love God, and God says, I hate this. Wait a minute, there's something wrong here. You can't love God and then love this. You either love God or, and hate that, or you love this and you hate God. That's the picture God's trying to help us to see here. Uh, one of the things we learn about when we read in Chronicles and Samuel and all those other things, you know what a good king is, is when he comes in and cleans house. That's the best thing that can happen is to come in and clean house. In Second Chronicles 34.3, it talks about in the eighth year of his reign, when he was all yet, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And then it talks about he goes in and he's breaking down the altars, breaking down the groves, taking out the high places, doing all this stuff. Well, it probably didn't take a whole lot of Sunday school lessons for him to realize, Matt, you know, starting in Genesis, Exodus, you know, and working his way through, he didn't have to get to the book of Samuel to realize this is probably something we need to get rid of. Why? God hates it. That should be all it takes. But sometimes just because God hates something doesn't mean that we put the, the same amount of energy or thing that, um, the same amount of emotion that God does into it. And by the way, I'm not talking about, I don't think that they're talking about, it's not just because there's this little image sitting up on a shelf or along the sides of a church or all those other things. It's way more than that. Turn over to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Oops, too far. 2 Kings chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 5. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the host of heaven. So one of the things, if you, how many here have ever read, uh, Alexander Hislop's, uh, The Two Babylons? Anybody here? Okay, we got somebody. So Alexander Hislop's Two Babylons is a book, and he basically shows whatever mythology you want, it'll take you back to Babylon or Babel, Nimrod, and that whole story is the short version of it. And so when we look in here, what God says in the first part is that it's dealing with Baal to the sun. The sun is normally a male god when you look at the mythologies. The moon is a female god or goddess, that reflecting the light, just like what we believe as Christians in the typology of the Lord Jesus Christ um, and the Christians. But here's the difference. If you notice in this verse, it continues on. After that, then it says, um, to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the hosts of heaven. So if you start off with Baal, And then you look at all the other things, um, going back to Nimrod, you have Samarimus, you have Ashtarte, you have all these other female names that are in mythology that come from Nimrod and Samarimus. So Nimrod, the mighty horned before the Lord, the wonderful guy that he was, they set up a whole religion about him. And his wife, Samarimus, became the goddess. She became the virgin who conceived a child. His name was Tammuz. By the way, he died on his 33rd birthday. He was killed by a wild boar and was resurrected on the third day. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, th- years, thousands of years before Jesus Christ even came to this earth, there's already a myth, there's always a religion out there, the mystery religion of Babylon that talks about a father, a wife, a virgin mother called the Queen of Heaven, if you've ever seen that word, by the way, if you read it in Jeremiah, they made cakes under her, right? Their son, Tammuz, the son. by the way, later on, depending on which mythology rate the mom married the son after the dad died, and it gets messy after that, but that's a whole bunch of other stuff in there, um, but nonetheless is when you're dealing with this, look at it that there's offspring, so that's Baal, Balak, and Balaam. Samarimus set up her husband at, like a prophet to a god. She was the one that was involved in that. And so we see this, when we see this whole situation with Baal, then you get Balaam. That is I am, meaning multiples. That's offspring. That's the planets. But notice that it goes one step further than that. It says, to all the hosts of heaven. So now they're worshiping stars. They're worshiping other entities that are out there. It wasn't just enough to do this. Now they're going a step further. And then notice how, what says next. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem under the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and stamped it small to powder and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. I don't know about you, but that's not a Bible verse I normally hear in preaching today, right? And he break down the houses of the who? Sodomites. Now, we're all adults here. There's no kids here. We all know what a Sodomite is. Have you noticed that they were by the house of the Lord? Because, see, when you go back and you look in antiquity, they, had, they were very diversified back then. See, most of the pagan religions back then had this great gig going where they would set up their version of a temple, a church, whatever you want to call it. And then they'd have all these rooms around the outside of it that they would have male and female prostitutes. So whatever particular thing that was your bent, you could take care of. And then they would take that money because it was for money. And then they could go and do renovations on the temple and all these other things. Why? Because all of these religions go back to, well, The sun brings forth all life. Without the sun, there's no life. So therefore, certain sexual acts then have to show the greatest form of flattery to the gods because we're just trying to do what they're doing. And so on top of that, whatever your bent is, we don't care. And they said at this point in time, when we're reading here in 2 Kings, These male and female prostitutes have their houses where they work at and live at right outside the temple of God. That's where it's at. By the way, it's coming soon if God tarries. There's nothing new under the sun. And then just think, I mean, see how accepting they are? They just, it doesn't, you know, whatever your bent is. Uh, You can pick any letter of the alphabet. We got you covered. Come on down. And that's part of their worship. That's part of the worship that God says, don't be like them. Amen. Historically, it's a known fact about the things about prostitutes working along with the religious uh, systems. But I want to, and it was a fully inclusive system. But beyond that, also remember in Leviticus 18, it's full of the starting off with God talking about nakedness. What all these things that you're not supposed to do dealing with nakedness? Then you get down to Leviticus 18:22, where it says, "Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind." It is an abomination. By the way, I don't know about you, but I see all the time in the news that they have people that go through the Bible and they just can't see there's anything wrong with the sodomy. I'm not sure what language they're reading it in, but I don't think it's English. Now, let's just say this. Can God save a sodomite? Absolutely. God can. But if they get saved, they need to learn. They need to change their ways. Why? Because God calls it abomination. In Leviticus... um, 1823, it talks beasts. So it wasn't bad enough, all the other stuff that was going on. It wasn't bad enough that they had the male and female uh, prostitutes and the sodomy and all the other stuff. Then animals were brought in to be part of all these pagan practices. That's what's going on. That's why God says when you go in the land, you kill what? The animals. That's how bad and how filthy mankind can get. And if you don't think so, you just haven't been around some people. And I pray that's the case. I I, honestly, I pray that you are as innocent as possibly can be about how vile and how wicked mankind can be. But I was in the Navy. Good or bad? There's some good on it, there's some bad. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 25 and 26 says, The land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereon, or thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. God says, you get mixed up with this kind of stuff, and you down this road, you're going to get kicked out of the land. I don't know what's going to happen to America if God should tarry and decide not to come back soon. But the route that we're going We're going to get kicked out of the land one way or another. I want you to also think about that in chapter or verse 8. It says, he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba unto Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were by the entering of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. It's God's version of you want it, you got it. You want to go down this road? Fine. You're going to pay. And it's very easy for us to sit back and go, well, we would never do anything like that. But what's going to happen when it gets to the point? Do you want to feed your kids? Do you want to have a job? If the Lord should tarry, there's some very difficult times coming that the book of Judges, we're going to see the same kind of stuff all over again, unfortunately. What's going to happen can you imagine being, you know, the Bible talks about during the tribulation, you know, woe to the woman that has to give suck to a child. Can you imagine what it is to be a mom and have a little kid and realize that the only way that you can feed your child is to do something God has called an abomination? What if it gets like that? What choice are you going to make? What, you know, do you see the rock in the hard place there? You're talking about your child. You're not talking about, you know, so-and-so in a foreign country. You're talking about a child you're holding in your arms, and you realize that the only way that you're going to be able to feed them and help them live is to do something God told you you better have nothing to do with. And there's going to be so many people in the tribulation that are going to take that mark, hook, line, and sinker. They're not even going to bat an eyelash. Now, think, praise God, we're not going to be here if we're saved. Back to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. And in verse 4, and it says, And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. One of the problems we've gotten to in America, in my personal opinion, is we got to the point where we can't weep anymore. I mean, forget to blush and to be embarrassed by certain things anymore. We've lost the ability to weep as a nation. You know... How many times have we, have we honestly got down on our knees and wept before the Lord for somebody else? I'm a guy I'm not supposed to weep. I you know I get that. But I'm not necessarily talking about whether you cry tears. I'm talking the outpouring of your heart to God. Tears may or may not be involved. They're not they're not required. Now, if they're required for you, that's great. God bless you. But they're not always required. What matters is not the outside tears. It's the heart. And we read this verse here, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Why? Because they knew what was coming. They knew it was true. See, that's the other hard part sometimes is when you're presented with the a sound doctrine from the Bible. You have a choice. Do I accept it, which may bring tears, or do I ignore it and go the other direction? What are you going to do with it? See, God's not going to hold you accountable. He can just hold you accountable to the words you've already heard, and that's enough to put you in hell, right? And thankfully, he says, hey, all you got to do is take a free gift, and you don't have to go. But think how many other people are out there That have heard the gospel and said, I don't want nothing to do with that. Yeah, you know, it might have been a truth or it might have been good at a certain time. But, you know, we're so far beyond that now. Psalms 34, 18 says, the Lord is nigh to them are of a broken heart. Sometimes the problem is, what does it take for the Lord to break our hearts? I mean, what does it take? to actually make an impact on us in a very personal way when something happens. You know, it's very easy to use Brother Ken as an example and go, how many people have prayed for him from a broken heart? But the thing is, yeah, what happens in a year or two? Where's their heart at then? I mean, you're all here on a Sunday night, Having to put up with listening to me. So praise God. There's a whole bunch of, bo- I'm sure there's extra bonus points for you. Just for that. But think about, you know, the people that you know, that you've talked to, that, that have talked about Pastor Ken and are praying for him. What's their prayer life going to be in a year or a couple of years when that's out of sight and out of mind? Are they even going to have one? Is the only time they pray when something bad happens? And hey, I, Sign me up. That's me. I'm guilty of that a lot of times. I don't pray as often as I should. You know, Paul said pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean seven by 24 prayers. It just means there, you need to pray as often as things come to your mind. As often as you go, Lord, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not running out of situations to pray for. I'm just being totally honest. And I don't, and, and I honestly say, I don't know if I was just stupid and ignorant. I don't know if it's the world we live in now is so much different than it was 20 years ago, but there are way more prayer requests now for people that I'm aware of than I ever remember before. And maybe it's just me. And if it is, praise God, I'm just an idiot. So that's fine. But look at how many prayer requests there are out there. The little church up the, the road that I go to, we have a lady there that's dealing with internal cancer. You know, they're going to do some genetic stuff and hopefully do her. But it's like, look, if the Lord's not merciful, it doesn't matter what tests and what other things they do. She's going home to glory. I told you already about Alice Dunlap, who, you know, she's already gone. There, It's not like there's a lack of prayer requests. There's not a lack of things to break our heart with, but we are are we allowing God to do that few us. And I, some of you, I'm preaching to the choir. You're a way better prayer warrior than I am. I'm just trying to be real and tell you about my own sides of things where I'm a failure. And if you're a failure there, that's okay. You don't have to always be one. Just try to be a little better. I'm not, you know, I'm not, look, there are some people out there who are ultimate prayer warriors that I am never going to attain to that. But that doesn't mean I can't strive to be better, to to pray more. You know, there's times I'll wake up in the middle of the night now, and what I try to do is I, I start praying for people I know that are sick. I start praying for missionaries, and I figure there's a couple things here that's going to happen. One is I'm praying for them. That's good. Two is the devil will probably want me to go to sleep, and that's not that bad either. <laughs> now, that doesn't always work. There's some nights I'm on of all the way till morning because of other issues I have to deal with. But you know what? Sometimes God's doing that little small voice to talk to you saying, hey, I need some people to pray for this person. You may not even know why. It's like I've told the story about Joey Anderson. He ended up getting an infection. He was in Papua New Guinea, and he needed a very specific antibiotic. About six months before, somebody got a whole bunch of expired meds and shipped a whole box full of them to Papua New Guinea. So what did they do? They need this one. There's You can't in Papua New Guinea. It's not like you're picking up the cell phone and calling the local pharmacy because there isn't one. Unless you want to fly. Oh, by the way, there's no planes to fly. But you can't drive there because there's no roads to get you there. Which means you have to find a boat to get you to the big city so you can find a pharmacy. So that's out. So now you're looking, okay, well, we got these boxes of meds and you start going through there. And you find by chance, here's the exact med he needs. But that box was shipped a couple months ago. Because God knows what's needed. You don't know what's, it could have been one of you here that was praying for that need when that prayer request came through. And then it's like, God already provided an answer. Praise God for the people that pray for them. There's people that desperately need our prayers. James chapter four, uh, verses eight to 10 talks about draw an eye to God. If we want to get close to God, that means we got to have a soft heart that can get close to his heart that's a hard thing to do because we have all these distractions and things of the world and jobs and bills and health issues and all of this stuff occupies our mind and makes it harder for our heart to draw nigh to him but i do have a question for you i want to ask you when do you think you were the closest to the lord when, when do you think you were absolutely the most close to Lord you ever have been in your life? Was it while you were skipping rope on the mountaintop experience? No. It's when you're going through a trial and struggle. And the problem is, instead of taking those trials and struggles, we go, oh, Lord, I don't want any of those. And believe me, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm, I'm a wimp. I, Lord, I don't really want anything really bad. You know, it's like, a stub a toe, maybe something along those lines, you know, something that's a, you know, bad injury, and maybe I have to go see the doctor, but I'm out like in a week and it's all good. You know, that's like, that's kind of me and those kinds of things. But are we willing to offer ourselves on the altar for God to say, Lord, let your will be done? If you're a husband, are you willing to go and say, Lord, I really like my wife and she still puts up with me. So I'd like to keep her around. But are you willing to go, Lord, if it's needful, take her. How about you have, you know, you have one child like Abraham, Lord, if it's needful that you take him, take him. See, that's a whole different level of spirituality and Christianity than the people that are sitting up in the huge amphitheaters preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 7 10 talks about for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but sorrow of the world worketh death. See, when we have things that happen to us, there's only two ways it plays out. We either have godly sorrow or worldly repentance, or whatever words you want to use. One of them brings you close to the uh, to the Lord, the other ones you're just sad you got caught, or you're just sad that the issue happened. That's the only two ways it plays out. There are people in this world that need to see Christians go through godly sorrow. They need to see there's another way. You don't have to act like the world. You don't have to let all these other things that come. You know, it's like I miss Alice already. She's a gr- She was just a great blessing and a great help, but she's gone. But the thing is, if if I act like it's the end of the world what does my Christianity then believe? What am I doing? What kind of example am I out of other people? Now, look, that doesn't mean that, you know, I maybe shed tears, maybe a few, nobody around because I'm a guy, right? Those kinds of things. But they need to know that one, you're real. Two, that you really loved them and cared for. But three, you don't sorrow as one without hope. I know where she is. Uh, She's got no problems now. She does not want to come back. It's just a selfish person here that go. We'd like to have you back here and be miserable like the rest of us. You know, that kind of a thing. Remember in Matthew chapter 26 with Peter. The Lord said, you're going to deny me three times. Can you imagine that feeling of Peter on the third time? And then to look into his eyes. I mean, I know I've messed up and I've done a lot of really dumb things. I haven't done that one at least that I know of. But can you imagine what that must have been like for Peter to hear that cock crow the third time and then look and see his eyes? Can can you imagine the shame to have to get up in front of your Lord and Savior and go, Lord, I'm sorry. I did the exact thing I told you I wasn't going to do. I I managed with everything I had within me that, Lord, I'm not going to do this. And I did it. And I'm sorry. In comparison, you look at the story of Judas, and Judas brought back the silver, and he threw it out on the thing, the temple, and they're like, oh, we can't take that, that's blood money. But what we can do is pick it up and put it into another little bag, and we'll go buy a field with it, and bury you there, cause that's okay. Right? I mean, that's just, just think about the logic of them. Judas did something wrong. He was sorry, but what did he do? Went out and hanged himself. See, that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly repentance. There are two people that both made bad decisions. The different was how they dealt with it. Hey, I'm not saying Peter was skipping rope after all this. He wasn't. In fact, I think that's why, I think in a lot of reasons, because of how bad Peter felt, that's why the Lord said, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter you love me and asked him three times because I think Peter needed that. Peter needed to know, look, I made a terrible mess. I made a shipwreck out of things. And God says, you know what? That's okay. That's okay. You came back to me and you came back to me with the right heart attitude. That's all that needs to happen. And sometimes that's a part we forget. I mean, look in the book of second Corinthians, you know, they give, they, they have this bad issue that happens in the church and they kick the person out. The person gets right, comes back and the church is like, get out of here. Why? The love was gone. And Paul had to write them a letter and rebuke them. It's like, look, you're all praying for this situation to get right. And this person to get straightened up. So he does it. And now you're like, you can't come here. It's like, huh? Then why did you pray in the first place? Because you're putting on a show. Yeah. It's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The heart is such a difficult thing to deal with. Uh, by the way, in Judges chapter two and verse five, it talks about the name of that place being Bokum, And it means a place of weeping or weepers. Another meaning is a place of mulberry trees. Um, once again, the I am being plural. So just reemphasizing that point. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and we're going to end here. 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and we're going to look in verse 23. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be when thou hearing hearest the sound of going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba until they come to Gazer. So God's saying here, He's talking about the mulberry trees, and. He's saying, in this case, they're out in the middle of the mulberry trees. And if God doesn't show up, it is going to be a place of weeping. If God doesn't show up, there's going to be no victory. And God says, what I want you to do is go camp out in these trees. And this helps being in the Pacific Northwest. If this is North Dakota, this would kind of be a wasted thing because there's not enough trees to get excited about. But here we have trees. Can you imagine going out and you're with all these guys and you're, you're let's face it, you're probably not excited because you're fighting a better force than you. And God says, you wait until you hear the movement up in these mulberry trees at the top, and then you go. I'm going to show you first the sign that I'm going to make that sound, and then it's time for you to fight. Well, see, that's the other part of the Christian heart is once you get your heart all fixed up and you got it right with God, guess what? It's time to get back in the battle. Yeah, you might have been kicked down, beat up, drove over, back and forth a couple times. Uh, You know, all those kinds of things may have happened in your life. When your heart gets fixed up to the Lord, the next thing is you need to dust your knees off, get back up, and get back in the battle. Don't stop. Don't quit. There are people that are in this church. It doesn't matter what church you're in. They're looking at you, and they're looking for you to be an excuse for them to quit. Well, you know, they used to come here all the time, and they were here every time the doors opened, and they quit. So why should I keep coming? Don't be an excuse for them. Don't let them off easy. Don't let them be a reason for them to stop being the Christian they should be because they see something in your behavior. Now, I don't mean coming here with the plague or some other disease that you're going to transmit it to everybody in the church. It's okay. Please stay at home. Watch it on the webcast. When you're good, come on back. But please, in this day and age, we need people who are in the fight. And the fight is a hard one. It's not easy. But it starts with when these tough things happen, get your heart right. And then once your heart's right, go back to the battle. Get back in the battle. Get back to where you were at. Do the things you were doing before. You know, if, and maybe you weren't doing anything before. Well, guess what? It's a good time to volunteer. There's always need for volunteers in the Lord's army. There's always things that need to be done. If nothing else, I can tell you one right now. It's the nursery. Now that's only for you ladies. Sorry. Um, but there's always a need for different ministries to have people there. It's not like there's too many people that show. I mean, can you imagine the worst thing at all? You know, I'm sorry. We've got everybody in the church signed up for this. We can't all have you do this. <laughs> Said no pastor ever. <laughs> Instead, it's the 10%. It's probably all of you right here that sign up for 90, you know, that do 90% of the work. But that's still a good thing. And it's a good example to everybody. you got new people that come in. They're watching you. Are you real? Do you have a real heart? Do you have a real passion for the Lord? Do you want to do things for him? Are you just doing it for it? <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I'm getting to stand up behind the big wood thing with a microphone. Woohoo! Right? No, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it for him. It's all for him. All to him I owe. At the instant I got saved, God didn't have to do anything else for me. Why? He gave me more than I deserved. He gave me salvation. The least I can do is go, Lord, can I give you back something? As pathetic as I am, and you know, I'm, it's just the truth. Can I give you back something? It may not be great. It may be not as much as brother and sister so-and-so, but that doesn't matter. Can I do something for you? That's from my heart to you. That's real. That I'm going to commit myself to doing. That's the important part. And if we can do that as a church family, doesn't matter whether, what the name is on the door, doesn't matter what you town you live on, that's a successful church family. Because why? Those are, people see your heart and you're willing to get in and do stuff. Guess what? You're more likely to get them praying for you. Why? Because they see that you're invested. They see that you're all in. They're like, Hey, I want them to keep going. I want Lord to keep them in the fight. I want Lord to keep them in the battle. You know, or maybe it's some other things where, where you get somebody new in and they're like, I've never seen Christians act this way before. I've never seen a real Christian. All I've seen is this plastic box mask and costume. I've never seen somebody have a real heart for the Lord before i've never seen somebody pour their heart out to the lord and want to just do something for him and not for any other reason how much just little things like that can make a difference you don't know what how much of an impact each and every one of you has in the people not just sitting here in this church but in the outside cuz let's face it your neighbors know hey they're not home this is gotten to be quite a thing now they're not showing up on sunday nights you know their vehicles are gone from the you know They see you pull out about every single time. They're not surprised by what you're doing. But if they see some things different in your life about how your heart is and how your desire to serve the Lord is, maybe they're going to go, wait a minute. They're going doing this stuff and somehow they're different than me. Maybe I should go. And maybe the next time you go witness to them and you ask them, hey, can you come with me? Maybe they're like, you know what? Maybe I will. I understand some people are a hard row. I know there's some people that we have in church that have been witnessing to people for decades before they finally come to church. But you know what it is? It's an amazing thing when they do. Even if nothing happens, even if they don't get saved, the fact that the testimony of the person that invited them has reached them so much that they're willing to come and take out of their own selfish time in life to come see something about this God person you're talking about. So let's close. And let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for each person here. Lord, I just pray that you bless them for coming to hear something from your book, Lord, and that uh, your Holy Spirit would minister to them. Uh, Help them, Lord, in their own walks and their own struggles and their own difficulties, Lord. Help them to be a bright beacon of light of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it can do in our lives to this community and the people that they live with and their family members, Lord. Minister to their needs. Uh, Lord, just I know there's plenty more needs in this church than I'm aware of for prayer requests, Lord, but you know them all. And I pray that you'd minister them. I pray that you'd bring the comfort and the love and the strength and all the other things that are needed, Lord. And we ask this all through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.